We heard these words just a few moments ago. I want to read them again. From Ezekiel chapter 33. He says this, But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways, and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you yourself will be saved. Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Therefore, son of man, say to your people, if someone who is righteous disobeys, that person's former righteousness will count for nothing. And if someone who is wicked repents, that person's former wickedness will not bring condemnation. Whew. <laughs> Those are tough words. For a Sunday morning, maybe tough words for any day. Brings me back to fifth grade. Never forget the moment. I, I was sitting in my seat, Mrs. Stoltenau's class, and, and I could just see it kind of flushing her face. She had just talked to Joe, Joe Davis in my class, and Joe had told her something that made her very, very upset. You could tell when Mrs. Stoltenau was getting upset because it would start basically right around her eyes. Her eyes would get bloodshot as her eyes would start to bulge out and the, the redness would just start to fill her face. And she had this way of, of being angry and yelling without yelling. It was just like her tone would change. And as I watched her face, I knew she was about to let an outburst. And I knew why. She made the announcement to the class. She said, I have just learned something very bad. And if I find out who did it, they are in big trouble. And I sank down in my seat because I knew what she was talking about. And nobody really said a word. And she says, I want to know now, who did it? My friends told me that about that time, I started to turn green. She said it again. Who did this? And here's what she was referring to. You see, a few days earlier, Joe Davis had gone up in front of the class, raised his hand and says, Mrs. Stoltenau, I'm into model rocketing. Do you think that I could do a demonstration for the class of my new rocket that I just built? Any of you ever do model rocketing? Lots of hands going up, and these aren't just models. These are rockets that actually launch up into the atmosphere. It's amazing and fun, and, and, and then they, there's like this explosion, and, and out comes a parachute, and they, they float down. It's a lot of fun and really, really cool, and, and the thing was is Joe Davis wasn't the only one in our class that was into model rocketing. I was into model rocketing, so were some of my friends, and who is Joe to be the show-off to say, I'm going to show off my rocket. I wanted to show off my rocket. It was not fair, and that's why I hatched a plan to thwart the effort late 
one night as I was losing sleep in anger over all of this and, and the injustice of all of this, I had an idea, knowing, knowing what I knew about rocket geometry and the, and the launch and what would happen up there, I, I realized that as the ripcord would be extended from the rocket when the parachute was, was uh, blasted out, that if I cut the ripcord ever so slightly, it would break up in midair, and Joe's rocket would fall all the way to the ground from a thousand feet up. It would be awesome, and yet so terrible. Not proud of this, but it seemed justified. I mean, after all, he was a show-off. After all, he had no right being the only one doing this. And after all, why would we take time away from learning in the class time to focus on Joe? I was justified, so I thought. So during lunchtime that day, as we came from recess and the rest of the class headed in for lunch, I pretended that I had to go get my lunch from my desk and snuck into the classroom that was quiet and the lights were off. And I, I snuck in and, and went to go do the terrible deed of finding Joe's rocket in the back table work area. And the problem was I, I couldn't find a scissors there was no scissors anywhere except for one of those safety scissors, you know, with the, the dull ends that really, and you know, have you ever tried cutting a rubber band with one of those? It doesn't work. And, and here I am realizing somebody's coming, I can get this done, and I'm trying, and it just doesn't work, it doesn't work. And finally, it just sliced through the whole thing, which was not the plan. But as somebody entered the room, I just put it down, I walked away, and, and pretended to just say, oh, how you doing? And I just, and I walked back to lunch, and rather embarrassed but yet, nonetheless, I had sabotaged his rocket. Maybe he wouldn't notice. And, and the problem was, after lunch, as he was getting it ready, he noticed. And he let out a gasp. He's like, somebody ruined my rocket! And that's when Mrs. Stoltno found out. And somebody was in big trouble. It was not such a big deal at first, because after all, we, I felt justified. But then as Mrs. Stoltenow made the announcement, she said, whoever did this, if I find out, they are not going on the class trip this year. And then I realized the condemnation of that. I couldn't wait for the class trip. I'd been waiting all year for the class trip. They had just opened a brand new zoo in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I couldn't wait. I, and I knew she was going to find out. And I'm looking over at my friends, and they're, they're just laughing at me. And I'm like, what am I going to do? Because they're going to tell on me. Somebody's going to tell. What do I do? And as Mrs. Stoltenow, again, raising her voice, said, if I find out who did this, I raised my hand. I couldn't handle it anymore. So it goes with sin. Sometimes we live in it and we live with shame and we live with guilt and we're overwhelmed by it and, and we try to justify it and, and it might go something like this. Well, I deserve this because after all, my spouse doesn't get me. <laughs> or my parents don't understand. How are they to tell me I can't live my life this way? Or maybe it goes like this, there's such a demand to get good grades, and who cares? I mean, everybody cheats, don't they? Or it might go like this, you know what? 
I'm not greedy. I just really know that I need to provide for my family and work long hours and sacrifice the way I do. And the list goes on. We justify. Our priorities, we think, are more important than God's priorities. Our own personal truth becomes uh, the, the, the ledger by which we live by rather than turning to God for truth. And our hearts grow hard, our minds ignore, and our ears are unwilling to listen. Because we think, after all, the goal in life is our own personal happiness, and we lose sight of the fact that if it's outside of God's will for us, that we've lost our way. Ezekiel writes to people at a pretty troubling time in Israel's history. Ezekiel is a prophet raised up, and, and if you know a little bit about Old Testament history and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and, and the Babylonian exile, and, and here God's people have been taken away from their homeland, and, and there's political upheaval and, and this time of turmoil, and, and then it happens. And in 586 B.C., Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem, the, uh, the temple of, of God is, is destroyed. It's left in shambles. And as the, the word of that begins to resonate to God's scattered people, their hopes are dashed. That city represents their identity. It represents their spirituality. It, it represents who they are and who they hope to be. And it's in shambles. And in the midst of that, we get to chapter 33 of Ezekiel where these words of God reminding his people, why do you continue to live in sin? And they say, we're going to die here. We're going to die in this place. And God says, I take no delight in leading a wicked person to die. Rather, I invite you to turn, to turn, to turn from your sin. It's quite an interesting thing, isn't it? Sometimes we get an idea that God is all about wrath and that God is all about making this list of do's and don'ts and, and yet God is saying, no, it's, it's less about that and it's more actually about love. That I love you enough to tell you what's wrong rather than just sweep it under the rung, rather than pretend everything's okay. Because isn't that really kind of what our culture has become all about? I've been intrigued by this. You know, we, we live in a time where just human behavior and, and what is acceptable and what is normal in, in, on so many levels and how we treat one another. And, and yet we, we lift up this banner of tolerance and, and yet at the same time there's more anger and hostility in our culture than ever before and, and the hatred that exists. And, and what can often happen even in the churches is we raise this banner of uh, that it's, it's all about grace. And, and I get that. You know, our church is founded on grace. I was, I was reading an article this week that this kind of, I, I felt pointed to the issue. There's a, a mainline denomination right now that, that's going through, through some changes in, in, in conversations about becoming more conservative and more biblical. And, and this is, is resounding throughout the, the denomination and there's some, some pushback on this among some. In fact, I was reading a, a, an open letter written by one of the, the bishops in this, this mainline denomination and, and she was writing and she said, you know what, our church has never been about taking the Bible literally. We've been a church built on grace from the beginning. And I'm reading this, 
And I'm thinking, that is a contradiction. Because grace without the truth of God's word really isn't grace. It's just kind of just warming everything over, just saying everybody's okay, everything's fine, just, just love each other, just get over it. We're really not broken people. We're really not messed up. We're fine just the way we are. <laughs> and I believe God just shakes his head. Because if we're fine, how do we explain that? <laughs> Why would God have to go to a cross if everything's fine? It's not fine. It's not okay. We've lost our way. And we need a God who enters in and, and is willing to tell us the hard truth that points us to our sin, the, the, the law that examines our hearts and, and points out our need for forgiveness and grace, the fact that we have strayed and turned away from God. And in the numbness of that, a God who injects us with reality to realize that the wage of sin, the result of sin, is in fact death. But it need not be. Because God has come with an answer for it. It's the whole reason he enters into this broken world and turns toward the cross. I, I love these words. And you know that the great verse from and great. Chapter, chapter 3 of John, or John 3, 16. Oh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him would not die, but have what? Eternal life, right? And, and this promise in that very section goes on to say this. For God did not send his son into the world, which by the way, there's many places where Jesus refers to himself as the son of man and, and many made that connection to Ezekiel who talked of these promises of God fulfilled in a time that would come and here's Jesus as a fulfillment of that as the son of God, the son of man who comes as a ransom for sin. And he goes on, it says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus has come not to bring condemnation, but to bring forgiveness. He has not come to say everything's okay. No, rather, he points out everything's not okay, and it's why I've come to deal with that head on for you, that we would turn from our sin to a new reality of mercy, forgiveness, and grace in a relationship with our Lord. Or as Paul would write it later, he says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A new reality. Not of condemnation and death, but of life, forgiveness, and grace. You know, that day in the classroom, I raised my hand in absolute fear of what the repercussions would be. Mrs. Stolt now saw my hand go up and she said, Mark, come with me. And she walked with me out into the hallway. And then I just looked down in shame and, and fear. I'm thinking, what are my parents going to say when they find out? What, what's, I'm just, I can't imagine having not be able to go on the class trip. And I'm just like, oh, this is terrible. And yet I knew I just had to be honest. Because I couldn't live with the guilt anymore. And I just stood there expecting the worst. And, and with that, as we walked out into the hallway, there was a stillness, there was this quietness. And there's Mrs. Stoltenow just standing in front of me. And the next thing I realize is I'm starting to weep as I feel her 
embraced me. She hugged me. And she said, Mark, I want you to know I'm proud of you. And I looked like, proud of me? For, for what? I did a terrible thing. She's like, yes, you did. But I'm proud of you for being honest about it. And I want you to know that you are forgiven. And I know, Mark, you know Jesus, and he forgives you too. Now go apologize to Joe. As far as you and I are concerned, we're good. And my mouth just dropped. I, what? Mark, you're loved. It's okay. She taught me more about God's love in that one moment than I'd learned in a long time. Forgiveness is real. A God who turns his mercy in grace. There now is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It was true for me that day, and it's true for all of us today. It's real, and it's true in his name. Amen.